A mother in Yuma, Arizona is desperately seeking answers nearly a decade after her 19-year-old daughter went missing. I'm just begging and pleading for somebody to please help us, help us find her. He used to own Black Rose. So he had construction below his trailer. He had like a hole there. I was like, dude, that guy? No way. I knew he was weird, especially with young ladies, but I didn't know he was, you know. But that's the thing, you never know with anybody. Are we still recording? Yeah, I've heard, um, you're on the right track. I've been in the house, and yeah, there was construction there. I was witness to the disappearance of Emily. Can you tell me that story? I don't want to re reincriminate myself. <laughs> I have an extensive crime record. I'm El Marquis, and this is Real Gothic a podcast about small towns with big crimes. Before I can tell you the rest of this story, I have to tell you how it started. I think it's important that you understand where I'm coming from. I never intended to start a podcast, let alone get so deeply enmeshed in Emily's story. A friend who was enamored with all of my stories about my hometown bugged me for weeks trying to get me to agree to do a podcast about it with him. I was not interested. First of all, I am not a journalist. I'm just a girl from a strange town who likes to tell stories about it. Eventually, I gave in and agreed to do the show. My plan was just to tell you a few of the stories that happened in my hometown of Yuma, Arizona. A storied old west town where the lore of the outlaw still defines the culture. It's flat and expansive, and rows of cabbage and cauliflower stretch out to reveal silhouettes of purple mountains. One, called Picacho Peak, is even shaped like a cowboy hat. Lots of spaghetti westerns were filmed there in the 40s and 50s. My mom has a story about dancing with Robert Fuller when she was young. And everyone in town will tell you about John Wayne riding his horse onto the elevator of the San Carlos Hotel. But Yuma's residents have become desensitized bystanders of a community entrenched in violent crime. You see, Yuma had the first prison in the Southwest. Images of famed Yuma outlaws can be spotted throughout town. The children take field trips to the old prison and pose for photos behind bars. I was one of those kids. Emily was one of those kids. The Yuma High mascot is literally a criminal. It's a big scary guy in a striped jumpsuit with a scar going across his face known as the Yuma criminal. This could easily be written off as a cute tourist attraction, but unfortunately, violence is still a big part of the culture growing up in Yuma. Crime in general is a big part of Yuma, and that will likely always be the case due to its proximity of the borders of Mexico and California. I have never been involved with any organized illegal activity, nor have I had any issues with addiction. Yet, and this is not an exaggeration, I had a gun pulled on me for the first time when I was 12 years old. And by age 17, I was witness to someone getting shot to death. Most of the people I grew up with have similar stories. This is just an unfortunate part of growing up in Yuma. Just this past January, two unnamed girls ages 18 and 19 were arrested by the Border Patrol agent for attempting to smuggle 47 pounds of meth into Arizona by way of the Yuma-Mexico border. A few months before that, an 18-year-old Yuma man was arrested for having 138 pounds of meth. 
everyone knows at least one person who does this kind of work for a living. It's a part of the economy. There are countless tunnels that go underground from Mexico to Yuma. Once, while hiking with my dad, who is an avid outdoorsman, we accidentally stumbled onto one of these tunnels. To this day, I will never forget the terrified expression on his face when he realized what we were looking at. I was about nine years old, a bit too big to carry for long distances at that age, but still, he grabbed me and ran as fast as he could to the truck before anyone could see us. A week before this recording, a 16-year-old boy fired shots outside of his school early Monday morning. Fortunately, no one was shot. While Yuma doesn't have the highest violent crime rates in Arizona, it's hard to get an accurate number. Since so many of its residents don't trust the police, many of the crimes go unreported. I tell you this not to shock you, but so that you can understand how incredibly common drugs and violence are in the community I grew up in, and how a beautiful, all-American star athlete could become addicted to methamphetamine and vanish all within one short year. This is the story of Emily Heber. My name is Jenny Jimenez, and I am Emily's mom. We used to say Emily was our Emily. You know, she she had such a strong personality always. She was very independent, even as a child. And like I said, I mean, she loves with everything she has. She would fight with everything she has. <laughs> And that yeah. was just M. That was M. Growing up, my favorite stroke was butterfly. And when Emily got into swimming, which I was very proud that she got into swimming, I was excited. Then her favorite stroke and best stroke was butterfly. So I held the record at COFA for I don't even know how long. And that was her goal. Her goal was to beat my record, beat my time. <laughs> and I will never forget it. It was uh, amazing. As soon as she hit the wall and we looked and she had beat my time, she pretty much got out of the water, ran to me. It was like she was walking on water. She couldn't get to me fast enough. And we hugged and it was so exciting. And I was so proud of her. You know, you just, you never realize, you know, how, how proud you can be of your child when you see them so successful at something they love so much and she just loved to swim. I'm Maisie, and I met Emily in 2004. It was August 2004, start of fourth grade. I was new to the school, new to the area, and Emily and I had the same class, and she was one of the first friends I met at Raleigh Elementary. It was so easy to get along with her. She came to me right away, she was a lot more extroverted than I was, and I truly appreciated just how she kind of took me under her wing in a way. I do remember at recess that day, like the first day, honestly, at recess, she wanted me to meet everybody. I feel like we were running around just, oh my gosh, I gotta show you this person, I need to introduce you to this person. She knew everybody, and she was friends with everybody, no matter the group, or the click, it was Emily would just <laughs> bounce to each group every day, every recess. And I truly appreciated that looking back. It was nice to have a friend who, it was so easy to just start that friendship. 
My name is Maggie Gunvan. Emily was my childhood best friend. She was just very unapologetically herself. She's like, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I don't care if someone thinks my joke was bad. I think it's funny and I don't care. <laughs> so, and we're very opposite in that sense. So we just mesh so well because I'm like, Emily, stop doing that. Like, Emily, you're embarrassing me. Stop it. But she was just like, she was out there. She was loud. You knew she was in the classroom. That's really her. She was very honest. She was just going to tell you like it is, even if you didn't want to hear it. And we could talk forever, just like about nothing. And so this is like the funniest story that I like know of us three. And we're driving to take Emily to like her aunt's house, I think it was. And my grandma was driving the car and us three are in the back. And my grandma wasn't the best driver. And she's driving down, um, gosh, the main road. I think it's 32nd. So she's driving down that road and we get to like the, almost the foothills area. And that's where like those medians show up. And I wasn't paying attention, but all I hear Emily say, median, median, median. And my grandma like runs it over and we all start dying laughing. Like, okay, no one's hurt. We're still alive. But I like can hear it in my head. Median, median, median. And Emily's like pointing like median, median, median. And my grandma's like, oh shoot. Again, shows her character. She wasn't like, hey, there's a median or freaked out. She was just like, median, median, median. I'm like, what else are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. My name is Mike Fox. I'm Emily's uncle. I'm married to her aunt, her mom's sister. That's how I got to know Emily. And it really was from the time she was an infant all the way up. And I mean, family vacations on the beach, just everything, you know. And as a toddler, she would not leave us alone, especially when I was like, you know, go away. She was right there. And she was a good kid, like always smiling, always happy. By all accounts, Emily was vivacious and charismatic. She was an incredible athlete destined for college, but in her senior year of high school, things started to change in her life. So when did you start noticing the changes in her personality? You know, her junior year was probably her best year. Her grades were so good. Her swimming was phenomenal. It was getting colleges interested in her and everything. And it was just a really, really good year. Then summer came and things just started to get different. She was different. Just her demeanor, her even her personality. She was starting to be a little more secretive. And then we started noticing, you know, different like things going missing. I would find things in her room, honestly, just started finding, you know, like just marijuana and stuff like that. But then things just escalated. Yeah. Um, I didn't really honestly know how far they had escalated until after she had moved out. She just was a little more, you know, angry. Yeah. Did you, did you suspect it was hard drugs like meth at first or did you just think, I, you know, difficult teenager? I didn't. I never suspected it. I just thought she was just going through something. Emily always had her ups and downs. She really struggled because her dad wasn't really in the picture. He was, but he truly wasn't. So we struggled a lot with that. And not only that, I just think she struggled with a lot. I think she just had so many ups and downs and we just were always going through 
those things, all the ups, all the downs. I didn't suspect anything like that, no. She moved out two weeks before she turned 18. What had happened was, it was just one of those times where, you know, I found something else and um, I grounded her and I took away her car and that was it. She had called a friend. She had taken a lot more things than I thought she had taken, like her um, savings bonds and birth certificate, stuff like that. And she left and she didn't come back. She went from place to place, but we still kept in contact. I was giving her money, but we stopped that because then when we had realized what she was actually spending it on. Mm -hmm. um, so we would just do, you know, like food gift cards and toiletry items and, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But once she went missing, that's when I really, truly found out what was really, really going on. Oh, wow. So it wasn't really until she went missing that you realized the extent of her lifestyle. Yes. I mean, we did know about the meth because she did come clean with us about that. Mm -hmm. And you could really, you could tell appearance wise and, and stuff like that. Then I learned a whole lot more. What happened in that last year? I didn't even know if she was still doing drugs until I took her food. When she texted me and said, hey, can you bring me food? And I said, yeah, of course. Where are you? And she said, I'm staying at a hotel. And I was kind of like, okay, that's kind of odd. And it was like off of Fourth Ave. So there's a hotel and the Jack in the Box. I'm like getting my streets mixed up, but there's Jack in the Box. I stopped at Jack in the Box and I got her like some tacos, chicken sandwich. And I drove to that hotel she was at. And I was a little scared. Like, what am I getting into? Like, I don't know. I don't really know if, I don't know. I don't know what this is going to be, but I'm going to just show up and give her her food. So I showed up and I see her and she's with a guy. I don't know who this guy is. She walks up to my window and I roll it down. She's extremely skinny. She doesn't look like herself. It just didn't look, she didn't look like herself in general. And so I knew, that's when I knew, okay, she's still involved. She's still having struggles. And so I gave her her food, I handed it to her and she's like, we need to hang out and this, this and that. And it was like a normal conversation, but I just knew like, this is not okay. She's not okay. But I knew like, there's nothing I can do. Like I, it's just, it was really, really hard for me to see her like that. And I didn't really pay attention to like the guy that was in the background, but he didn't really pay attention to me either. He was like loading something in the car. And then we basically said bye. And that was the last time I saw her. Could you walk me through the last time you saw Emily and then how she disappeared? I can. It's a very specific day. I'm actually looking at the picture that I took of her on the very last day I saw her. She had come over. My youngest daughter had just had a baby in December and Emily was actually there for that as well. She had come over, it was January 28th. I will never forget the day. She had come over to visit my younger daughter and her brand new nephew. And she had, you know, spent some time here. Um, the picture that I have of her is she's holding him. And it was a really good day. You could tell that she was really excited to be an aunt. She wanted to be a very big part of his life. And that was the day. It was just a happy day, to be honest. It was happy. You could tell she... She just wanted to change things. She said it. I mean, those are words out of her mouth. I think that that turning point in her life of her being an aunt 
it was big with her. It was a big impact on her. So that day she left, we hugged. I told her I loved her. She said, I love you too. And I think I gave her a mirror. She needed a full length mirror. That was it. That was the last day I saw her. On February 3rd, 2013, Emily made her last post to Facebook. By February 8th, Emily's phone was disconnected. Two weeks later, her family tried to file a missing persons report, but frustratingly, as often happens in these cases, the police strongly urged against it. Emily's mom, Jenny, remembers the police saying that Emily is an adult and would likely show up eventually. A month and a half later, in late March, Emily's grandfather heard a police radio dispatch about a young woman's body found shot to death in the orange groves just outside of town. Arriving at the scene, he was relieved to discover it was not his granddaughter. Amidst this gruesome crime, he was finally able to convince the detective on the case to open an investigation into Emily's disappearance. Originally, when I thought this was just going to be a standalone episode, I started reaching out to Emily's friends and family to get audio clips about her. I went to Emily's Facebook to see if we had any mutual friends and noticed we had one. It was a guy I went to high school with. So I sent him a message. The next thing I know, this happened. I knew her when I was in active addiction. I didn't really know her before that. But, you know, she was a very spontaneous young lady. You know, she was very outgoing. She didn't mind speaking the way she spoke. Mm. What do you mean by that? I mean, she was just a very outspoken person. Yeah. But they told me that she was buried below a trailer and that had done it. I don't remember his last name. I couldn't, I couldn't remember it. But I just remember what trailer it was because I remember him having construction in his trailer. And... What, wait, wait, uh, so sorry. When you say like who, do you have anybody in mind? Like maybe... Yeah, he used to own Black Rose. So he had construction below his trailer. He had like a hole there, and then someone told me. And that was so random because I was like, dude, that guy? No way. I knew he was weird, especially with young ladies, but I didn't know he was, you know. But that's the thing. You never know with anybody. My old friend from childhood is saying Emily's body is buried below a trailer and that a guy who owned an all-ages music venue killed her. Is it possible I know Emily's killer? And is he still walking around Yuma in plain sight? I have spent the last year obsessing over her disappearance and reading every detail in Emily's over 500-page police report. I have talked to dozens of Emily's friends and family members and have attempted to follow every rumor to its source. I am determined to find out once and for all what happened to Emily Heber. Join me as I talk to people I haven't spoken to in decades and return to Yuma to face demons from my own past. If this was just an open and closed case, it wouldn't matter if you engaged with this show, but it's not. Emily is still missing and her family needs answers. 
A real way you can help right now is by subscribing to Rural Gothic and by rating, reviewing, and sharing it with everyone you know. I want to thank Jenny Jimenez for trusting me with Emily's story and to all of Emily's friends and family for their participation. A special thanks to Zach Schwartz for editing, Manish Matahar for the original score, and to Jam Cole for production assistance. A special thanks to Caleb Groh and Joshua Anzano for audio production assistance, and sources for this episode can be found in the show notes. We'll see y'all next time on Royal Gothic.